The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured and may not reflect those of Forsyth Bar Limited or Forsyth Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Forsyth Bar or Forsyth Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Doing Business in China podcast. My name is David Milhouse and I am Head of China Research at Forsyth Bar Asia. So we like to look at big issues in China and speak to industry experts who are doing business in that area. And today I'd like to talk about debt in China, which is obviously an incredibly topical discussion for a lot of international investors. And I'm joined with a good friend of mine, Tony Tang. Now, Tony has about 19 years experience in China. And some of his previous positions for you to know about is he was the head of ratings at Dagong, which is one of the largest corporate ratings businesses in China. He was also the director of Greater China Corporate Ratings at S&P. And before that, he was China equity strategist at Relegate Capital Markets, amongst other positions. Tony, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Steve, for having me. I think we'll start with a broad question. There's obviously... One of the perceptions from a lot of people internationally is that China has a lot of debt, which I guess in aggregate it does. But when you look at it, very interested in your view, um, where you see the de- composition of debt in China and what's the largest area of it, and if you do think that debt in China in general is, is too large. Uh, broadly speaking, right, usually we can categorize the debt in three categories, basically the corporate debt, uh, government debt, and household debt. At this moment, you know, China, the biggest portion of the Chinese debt are coming from the corporate sectors, which is uh, about more than 160% of the GDP uh, this year. Uh, we also have about you know, uh, 47% of the uh, debt from the household uh, sector and 56%, you know, uh, roughly around that uh, GDP of the uh, debt are coming from the government sectors. Yeah, definitely the corporate sectors account for the biggest portion. And uh, out of this corporate debt, uh, some estimates, you know, uh, shows about more than half half of them like coming from SOE debts, uh, or you know, some more specific categorized to the LGFE debt, which is a local government financing vehicle debt. Yeah, so you can say if you combine the if you recategorize categorize the the SOE debt or LGFE debt to the government debt, and that ratio will change, uh, become uh, more balanced. So I, I guess as you highlight them in totality. China debt is high, doesn't really stand out versus a lot of other countries, in particular Japan and whatnot, but one place where it is high is corporate debt, and as you said, over 160% of GDP. Now, your comment that a large proportion of that is within the state, within SOEs, do you think that's an advantage when China comes to try to de-risk it? Do you think the fact that it's it's heavily within state-owned enterprises, which is obviously control of the government versus being in private entities, will make this easier to de-risk or risk? structure? Actually, I think probably is on the countryside, you know, it would be the other way around. Uh, it's, it's a lot of cases we observed, it's actually more difficult for government to restructure the SOE debt. Uh, the SOE debt has a lot of across you know, many different creditors. Uh, they are tied to different governments, uh, the different you know, uh, uh, provinces or cities. All of these uh, governments, they have a very different priorities and agendas. And sometimes, you know, political fights can be involved. And it will be 
uh, you know, to push through a that deal or restructuring deal is sometimes much more difficult than, you know, in some cases we see uh, in the private sector debt. And uh, government, you know, if you come you know, in the, in the private uh, uh, sector debt restructuring, government normally only uh, a more stronger position. Uh, if, you know, they, uh, they have some some leverage against the uh, over, I would say over the the private companies when it comes to the the debt restructuring. Um, and uh, we we few months ago we talked you know to some of the uh, local enterprises and we saw those cases in like Zhejiang Province. We actually saw and the government pushed through the private debt restructuring quite quite smoothly. But when it comes to the SOE debt, a lot of times you know uh, to balance the different interests among the different governments is, is sometimes can be challenging I would say gotcha um, you just obviously mentioned that you're seeing the government trying to start to act now uh, with corporate debt and you gave an example in Zhejiang province I mean it is interesting isn't it I mean China has had experience in the past with corporate debt issues in the Asian financial crisis and midway through 2016, the government did specifically come out and saying they were looking at corporate debt and addressing it. What do you think the best avenues they should take right now to reduce the risk of uh, the corporate debt market becoming contagious to the banks? I would say this cycle of debt um, restructuring will be very different than the than we saw in the last mid, last round, in, which was done in the 90s by the pre- previous premier Zhu Rongji. Uh, it was done through at a very central uh, government level which was they created three or four major AMCs mm-hmm. to carve out all the, uh, the bad debt from the four big uh, state banks. And then and this round, uh, definitely uh, government taking a more market-based approach. They're not going to create a, a massive uh, AMCs at a central or very high level. They will more leverage a market force at ground level, I would say. That's why we see a lot of uh, a small AMECs has been established over the last few years. Uh, they can be attached to some small banks. They can be attached to some small, uh, even governments, and uh, can be you know even some corporates and uh, asset management firms. Like and they obviously traditional asset management firms. So uh, all these smaller firm or uh, AMCs which specialize in dispose the uh, the NPLs have been have been established over the last few years. They, being actively uh, getting into the auction process and uh, buying a lot of uh, those NPLs uh, uh, from the, uh, the big banks. So I would say that the, there's a very different uh, style uh, from this round compared to the we see in the 90s. For, for uh, what measures or avenues government have ever t- have taken so far, you know, I think and the first is the uh, uh, the central government and they, when they realized these debt problems, they came out to have an overall quota control. Basically, you know, the message was very clear. Say, you know, to the to the lenders and to the local governments, um, they want to control the total debt as a whole. Um, uh, that quota was allocated to each province, actually, okay. uh, and then you you only allowed to uh, to borrow so much. Once the, the total quota is under the control, so they start restructuring the debt among different sectors and industries to try to uh, save some really really uh, trouble companies. You know, to do this, uh, we also saw the, uh, you know, President Xi, he's a very powerful uh, figure. Quite a lot of his initiatives have been pushed through, and uh, the implementation uh, so far has actually yielded quite noticeable results, unlike, you know, always 
saw in the previous administrations that some of those policies couldn't go through. So that's why I said oh, President Xi and his and his authority and this his administration had um, takes the overall control as, at the macro level first, and then the next avenue or, or measures they, they 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 are doing is you know try to encourage more equity funding other than pure or equity or hybrid fundings other than pure you know, debt borrowings or bank loans to um, diversify the funding source for a lot of corporates, and the third. Uh, avenue approach they are you know they try to be innovative and creative on this debt equity swap thing uh, of course we saw some cases and you know some successful ones some are not successful ones and people uh, there are a lot of, there are a lot of criticism or controversial deals we observed in the market on some some um, creditors were pushed into this uh, this debt to equity swap. So that, but anyway, so that's also a project they are taking and mm-hmm. has has helped to uh, release some of the debt problems. Of course, you know, uh, also another uh, uh, approach is the is the PPPs because we know a lot of China's debt was accumulated by the SOEs and the LGRVs, right? Sure, uh, they were actually accumulated under the direction of the government, local governments, because local governments want to push through all these infrastructure projects. Uh, but because it couldn't borrow directly, you know, given the control of the laws set by the central government, uh, they have to use the SOE and LGFE as the platform to raise the funds to fund all those uh, infrastructure projects. By doing that, you know, uh, China, you know, China has the most funding uh, uh, indirect funding through the bank loans. So for that, the, those, those borrowings all sit on the book of the LGFE and SOE. Unlike many things we observed in the uh, in the in the West, or whether U.S. and Europe, a lot of the infrastructure projects were done through a PPP uh, style or a model. Uh, so that you know by. Definition: The PPP projects are 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 ring infenced, so they they are mostly off balance sheet uh, liabilities. They don't have to be brought into the the balance sheet. Uh, so China is also uh, learning this approach. I've been promoting the PPP uh, projects um, uh, in in the last few years. Try to you know uh, uh, to control the own balance sheet that uh, follows uh, uh, governments and, and SOEs. Of course, the last approach or measures you know, the government been taking is is, is to uh, uh, push through the uh, supply side reform and mm-hmm. tax reform. We definitely see, you know, if you look at the numbers this year and the last year, the industrial profits have been re- have been growing. Uh, I, uh, the, the first three quarters of this this year, actually, the industrial the overall industrial profits are grown. I think it's twenty something percent. Now. So that, it's a very strong growth in the profit side. Uh, 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 by you know uh, definition, if your profit is going up, and if you measure it on, on from a credit uh, perspective, your leverage is actually coming down. Uh, so uh, one of the things is you know if you have a successful supply side reform, will help the corporates to generate more profits, even though your total debt uh, level maintains the same. But uh, if you measure on debt to EBITDA uh, basis, and then your leverage is still coming down. So those are the uh, the five measures I mentioned. You know the, the government have been taking in the last few years uh, to help control the debt problems in China, particularly on the corporate side. Fantastic. 
just interested in a couple of the points. I think your first point's a very interesting one. Obviously, in 99, they did create the four asset management companies, which were central. And then, as you mentioned, now they're doing regional asset management companies and private asset management companies. I mean, that to me sounds like a better model. Would you agree having people experienced, people which are aware of the local conditions rather than having four central vehicles, which are trying to restructure a huge pool of assets, getting a more diversified and local flavor and, and commercial flavor to maybe restructuring loans sounds like it might be a better model than what they employed in the past do you agree with that yes absolutely i do agree and then by you know by letting more players participate in this in this uh, uh, market you bring in more uh, knowledge and expertise into the into the play and also we actually diversify the, the risk amount uh, if you have a full centralized AMCs uh, you, you, uh, so yeah this is definitely the market I would say the market force will play a bigger role uh, this round and uh, and also through the current models as you mentioned at the start one area which is growing is consumer debt and there's two avenues to that obviously mortgages the property market has been incredibly strong and then we have a situation via, via fintech and obviously banking becoming more inclusive where consumer financing is also becoming more popular. So when you look at consumer debt, are you worried with the levels are at the moment? Obviously, it's well below corporate. Or do you think that's we're just the infancy of that growing consumer credit market at the moment? Definitely, the credit, the consumer loan, ha, you know, consumer debt has have uh, increased noticeably uh, in in China over the last few years. But also, the consumers' uh, total deposits also increased. So, uh, if you measure on the net deposit basis, uh, China's net, uh, uh, household net deposits are pretty, f- I would say, uh, not flat. You know, uh, bouncing around within a small range between twenty five trillion to thirty trillion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that net deposits, it, it went through a, a decade of increase over the last you know uh, 20 years but it you know, kind of uh, uh, stopped growing uh, I think after 2015 something like that uh, after 2014 second half 2014 but yeah they, the net deposit has stopped have stopped growing but they, they're not dropping substantially either so which means Chinese consumers are still net savers Yes, they, we see on, on a growth basis that debt are, in, are, are, are increasing, but overall, the consumer debt are still pr- a smaller portion of China's uh, total debt. Personally, I'm not worried about the consumers. I think the Chinese consumers are still in a, in a reasonable, healthy position uh, nowadays. The, the biggest growth of, of, uh, among the consumer debt in the last few years are actually, like you mentioned, the, house, uh, the mortgage loans. Mm-hmm. But these mortgage loans, we know China has a huge down payment requirement in uh, to get a mortgage, um, so the banks are somewhat protected in a, in a in a way, and also the properties have collaterals. You have you know property lending. The mortgage has a property lending collateral, so relatively they are still I, I would say the good assets to the for the banks in general. Looking through your experience in China, I mean, obviously, incredibly experienced. In particular, it two very good ratings agency, both one within China with Dagong and then internationally with S&P. I think there's a, a, a perception with some people that ratings agencies in China are generally too bullish. And, you know, obviously, there are a lot of companies at AAA and whatnot. I'm very interested in, in your view on this and looking at your, your experience both internationally, because you have done international ratings, not just China and domestic, what the diligence process is and, and how you perceive the whole process around China corporates at the moment. Uh, thanks, Dave. It's actually a very good question. I'll emphasize the one thing. 
don't compare a Chinese reading with international reading. Those are apple and orange, very two different things. In the reading world, we call China's uh, readings called the national school readings, which were all done by the Chinese agencies. The big three, namely uh, S&P, Moody's, and Fitch, the readings they assigned are global scale readings. So they are very two different things. They're based on two different types of methodology systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the risk factors and the credit factors considered are very different. Uh, for example, right, in the global scale readings, you will consider a, a country risk uh, variations between, say, when you compare China's corp, Chinese company uh, versus a Japanese company versus U.S. company, the country risk will come into play. And also the industry risk. Uh, so if you compare a Chinese uh, oil company with a Japanese oil company and uh, and a Brazilian oil company, and the industry cycle are different. For the Chinese com- agencies, right, they are focused on the domestic credit risks. So their rating scales are all national uh, scale. So they only compare, you know, you know, ratings is, is about ranking, relative ranking of, of, of these companies in terms of credit worthiness. Sure. Uh, when, when, you, when, when you almost you can think of the Chinese ratings, they hold pretty much country risk constant. They don't okay. vary. Right, uh, uh, that does not go into a play into into the national school readings. Um, the industry cycle, uh, the, the uh, uh, risks they consider are very different. Even the even so, for some commodity uh, industries, you may have uh, 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 similar cycles risk between U.S. and China and other markets. But for some, like you know, um, uh, 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 industries like properties, consumers, or uh, and, and manufacturing. They, they may have very uh, local in, uh, in industry cycles. So all these considerations are different. So in the end, the, the ratings generated by the by the Chinese agencies, you know, in, in our rating world, we call the natural scale ratings. Uh, S&P and Moody's ratings are called global scale. So which means you those ratings are comparable cross globe. So if S&P assign a rating uh, for a Chinese company and they be compared to, can be compared with the European company, uh, as the European credit is assigned and, and the American company is assigned. That A or double B or whatever, triple B, means the exact same across the board. But for the Chinese company, their readings can only be compared within the Chinese border. Gotcha. You, you cannot compare those readings with anything outside China border. So uh, first, that comparison is, is not, um, is apple and with orange. That's, an, that's one thing. Of course, you know, once the once the uh, China is opening up the credit rating industry, right? So the Chinese, uh, the, the, the international rating agencies will go into China. So they were also facing a problem in how to assign the ratings. Are they assigned the global scale ratings? But that probably would not be be uh, will be useful in the Chinese market. Mm-hmm. So they may have to come up uh, their own national scale rating for China. Uh, that would be based on a different uh, uh, scale systems. Actually, S&P had a China national scale rating before. You know, as I, if I remember correctly, you know, if you have a global scale A, something like that, and it will be automatically mapped to a triple A in the national scale. But they, they withdrew that national scale in, in China because they want to rethink of that strategy. Say, uh, vice versa, the Chinese agencies are also coming out to the international markets. So when they come to international market to assign the global scale ratings, which is what we call international ratings, 
buildings, they will need a, a separate in, uh, methodology system uh, to consider uh, uh, more other risk factors, which is you know to ensure the rating ZSN can be compared uh, across the globe. So, which means even for one Chinese entities, you may have two ratings, which you have you may have a, a national scale China China national scale ratings, and you also have international scale ratings. Gotcha. So, yeah, so that's that's in the future, ideally, all the agencies in the market can bridge can create a, a mapping relationship between the national scale and the global scale and help international uh, uh, bond investors to, to 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 benchmark the risk basically gotcha okay that makes perfect sense i want to touch on the china bond market it's obviously had phenomenal growth over the last three or four years in particular and where we are right now it's a it's the third largest bond market in the world i'm talking about the corporate bond market but it's it's fairly illiquid for, for its size and when i look at the u.s obviously it's it's the largest corporate bond market but it's also incredibly liquid as well so it's at a really interesting time at the moment where we've just had the bond connect announced which will allow more foreign capital to to start buying chinese bonds how significant do you think this is and and when I look at the bond market more broadly, how important do you think foreign capital is going to be for China in terms of growing that market? Currently, the foreign capital of, we say, foreign money participation in China bond market is still very tiny. Um, I think it's, it's, it's like 1% around. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, there's a huge potential and a huge appetite uh, for international investors to get into Chinese bond market. I think the foreign investors can play a, a, a big role in the Chinese market, you know, and they can bring in different practice standards and then require for more corporate governance, help China to establish a proper risk premium curve. They can demand more um, uh, rating differentiations, rating difference, uh, differentiations, uh, uh, and also ask for more uh, transparency. I think they, they, they can play a very positive role in the Chinese bond market. Okay. Uh, however, you know, uh, China. When China opens up, the, you know, we we saw uh, we also witnessed right some of those like very highly speculated uh, foreign hedge funds or uh, investors. They can also create volatility to Chinese bond market. I think the I think the Chinese bond market is still very much premature. There's a lot of problems in uh, the systematic problems in in, in in the market. The government needs to sort it out before they can fully open up to the to the to the international investors. Uh, one of the hurdles is the national scale and the global scale readings I mentioned. Mm-hmm. The foreign investors couldn't understand the Chinese rating scales because as you mentioned all the triple A double A's because it's a very different scale system. And how do you map a piece of assets with a double A rating in China uh, with uh, a, a, a piece of asset that if you say invest your hold say uh, offshore uh, in Singapore or in Malaysia uh, weighted a double B how do you match those risks right right now the, 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 even the international rating agencies and Chinese rating agencies are not able to create that proper mapping yet so that's why I think one of the biggest hurdles is um, the, the investors just couldn't couldn't benchmark the risk uh, over time if the Chinese agencies or the international agencies can solve this problem or create a, a proper mapping relationship to the market, and then it will definitely will bridge uh, a lot of capitals into China. Um, um, yeah, and also the other one, you know, the Chinese, you know, regulators also needs to reform themselves too. 
Uh, Chinese bond market are very fragmented. Uh, uh, you we say you have multiple regulators. You have NDRC, you have CSRC, you have you know uh, PBOC, and then you have uh, CIRC. So uh, uh, to create a a one uniform bond market, which is also important for the for the for the uh, I would say for the for the investors too. I think China is doing things, but uh, for, it's still a very long way to go for the for, for, for the bond market to be, I would say, efficient. Gotcha. And just bringing this back into our original conversation about China debt, um, you alluded to this with the equity market earlier. I mean, how important do you think the bond market and the equity market are going to be in order to help the government really lever and also diversify funding longer term away from just the banking system um, that's definitely the goal for the Chinese government they want to move away from a, a bank loan which you call an indirect and funding system to a direct funding system which is you uh, know uh, equity market and the bond market I, I still say China there's a few things Chinese government needs to do first first they have to uh, reform the regulatory framework to facilitate the efficiency in the market. Right now, we, we still see a lot of uh, regulatory barriers or hurdles, you know, counterproductive uh, uh, to, the, to, the, to the market development. That's number one. Number two, the, uh, the regulators need to uh, promote transparency and a more di- better disclosure uh, for what both equity market and, and the bond market provide more information to the to the investors. Uh, uh, I would say in a, a better legal environment to promote fairness and justice uh, also is important to create uh, to boost up the investor confidence um, in the market. Um, uh, and uh, last, of course, we know the last government intervention uh, let the market play its force uh, is also important. So also, I think all this is the goals and, and the direction that government needs to work on, uh, from my perspective. Um, uh, of course, uh, one last thing, which is the RMB liberalization. You know, if you have a huge capital control, uh, it's 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 you know the domestic investors cannot diversify their risk, you know, and then they get stuck in the in the in the domestic markets of all, all the risk, and uh, the foreign money cannot freely go in and out into the Chinese uh, whether it's equity market or bond market uh, uh, to help uh, create liquidity and 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 uh, help establish the proper. Uh, yield curve or risk curve. So all these things, uh, I would say, you know, the capital control definitely uh, put a put a barrier in between. Even though you have the bond market, you say the bond connect, and you have you know through chain uh, equity market uh, connection, right? All these things are uh, are the steps that government taking, uh, but that's simply not. I would say that those are ex- experiments the government is doing, but they, they're simply not enough. They're not a true uh, free capital uh, flow across the border. Um, I would say that's that's quite also important for 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 the for the Chinese equity market and the bond market to play a, a real role in the in the Chinese economy. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's an excellent point, obviously. Uh, I think the IMF have talked about it extensively, but we are at the point, aren't we, where we really need to see reform. And that's that's broadly in capital market reform, internalisation, increased competition from foreigners, SOE reform, supply-side reform that you touched on. I mean, I think there's a perception that China needs to choose between growth and debt, but there is ways they can really deliver slowly, but achieve high growth and that's by pushing forward to more aggressively on the reform agenda and it sounds like you agree with that view I think I definitely agree you know China wants to control debt at the same time to promote growth uh, I think you know that, that actually this this year is the first year we observed uh, a slight uh, I think the overall debt I, I'm sorry I would say like stabilization or slight decline mm-hmm. as the first time in the, in the last in more than a decade we saw that the credit growth cannot continue forever to spur the economy. The government needs to restructure it. So in China tried to force a lot of different growth engines in the economy, like service sectors, the new, I would say, the new internet, and you know, it was the O2 was very popular in the, in, the, in the few years ago, and now the fintech, and all these things. China's economy needs to upgrade itself. Even the manufacturers need to upgrade itself, but the government needs to buy time. You know, uh, any reform cannot come and as a disruption. Uh, you, uh, and the old model may not work, but you, you need to keep them floating for you know for a certain period of time. And at the same time, hopefully, your policies can 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 help a new uh, growth engine to to emerge. Uh, and uh, and over time, you will you will, you, uh, you, the, you the the economy can be can be balanced. So, uh, I would say the last five years, particularly this year, you can see uh, the industrial profits are growing uh, again, um, and and then, then the total debt are under control. So that's a positive sign, right? Uh, and uh, and, and uh, we'll see. You know, I put and the, the government power transition has been quite successful this year. Uh, we can pretty much envision a, a very solid uh, leadership in the next five years and uh, President Xi and his team can push through uh, more reforms and, and, and uh, to help rebalance the, the economy. And of course China's not only needs to grow the sector, the service sector, the new economies and the, the tech ones, and they also need to upgrade their traditional older Type business model or economic model, and the old the old uh, manufacturers needs to have more technology content in it, and you can't just do a low value labor intensive um, uh, economic model anymore. So I think uh, we, we we see some encouraging signs. Um, of course, any big economy like this, when they change the uh, the direction, it, it takes it's a big shift to to turn. You know, it will be slow. Yeah, absolutely. One final question. Obviously, with incredibly experienced with China holistically, and your job is to look at Chinese balance sheets and whatnot. So maybe this is not an area which you might want to comment on, but just in case, one of the questions we have from international investors is, is what's behind the scenes off balance sheet? And we've seen a lot of regulation from the CBRC this year being very proactive at looking at off balance sheet funding for the banking system and the financial system in general. Is this an area potentially that we should be concerned of potential hidden leverage off balance sheet financing for the banks? Is this a, you know, potentially an area that we could be too sanguine about? Or do you think this is something that, that the banking regulator and the PBOC have got their handle on and de-risked significantly in the last 12 months? 
So if I understand correctly, so when you say off balance sheet means shadow banking. Correct. Yeah. Yes, it's a uh, uh, shadow banking. You know, from my perspective, has been in China for a long, long time, even before the. Uh, I would say the current communist governments, you know, coming to power. So there's a, there is a there's a history in China for these things. But is it risky? I would say yes. But is it risky? To the point that will overthrow the entire system.、Uh, quite honestly, I don't know. I think the the regulators and the governments have done a few rounds of、um, uh, I, I would say survey or dig around around how how big is the problem for the under, under for the shadow banking. They did brought a lot of uh, uh, those off balance sheet stuff onto balance sheet, but not everything.、Uh, quite honest, for this question,、um, I think it is. It is a risky area, and it's a gray area. We need to be careful about. But how risky, how how bad, you know, I don't know because there's a lot of different、um, uh, projections and forecasts. I don't want to throw a number out there、um, and say, oh, how this, you know,、um, how dark it is. Quite honestly, nobody has a really solid good data. To support any of those、uh, assessments and whatever those are projections by different houses, and、uh, I just you know I, I have no projection for those. Yeah, it's a hard hard thing, in particular from an outsider to get their head around. So, Tony, fantastic, incredibly insightful as always. Thank you so so much for your time. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured, and may not reflect those of Foresight Bar Limited or Foresight Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Foresight Bar or Foresight Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast.